0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. I was talking to a young woman before the service today and saying, boy, if there's one thing that I want to do in my life as a pastor in the years I've got left. In the days I've got left for preaching, the years that go beyond it, it's to, to, to work by God's grace to convince everyone in this church of how good God is and how worthy he is of all our praise and glory and our throwing our lives down to him. And we have a passage that, that speaks about that this morning. It's the passage we're looking at together. It's Matthew 26... Verses 6 through th- 13. Wow, this gets brighter every week. And so, I'm not, I'm not joking. They, they put up new ones and they, they figure I'm not blind enough. Uh, and so, they're, they're really trying to drive my eyes into retreat with, by these lights. How many of you have ever stood up here with these lights on? A few of you. If you never have and you want an experience of what it is to look at you, you can come up afterwards, all right, and take a look at it. Matthew 26, 6 through 13, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But when the disciples saw this, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good work to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the living word of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that as we look at your word this morning, that you'll empower me as I speak, and all of us as we listen to heed and to know the power of God's word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Some years ago we were walking through Wolfinger Cemetery, which is right across Central Avenue and down a little bit you get to it through Secor Metro Park, but that was well before our church existed here. We had gone there with a the family for a picnic, and then we walked through the cemetery, a lot of old graves, and we were enjoying just walking around. And we came across an old tombstone from the eighteen hundreds, and it said of a, it was obviously a woman who was a mother, and because there were I don't remember how, but it was clear that she was a mother, and they had a little epitaph, a little phrase underneath her name at the top. And it said, She hath done what she could. <laughs> And we said, "Whoa, You know, if there's ever damning by fame praise, it's this. You know, she hath done what she could." Like she tried. <laughs> she gave it her best shot. And we, we just sort of and, and from then on, between the two families, when we saw someone do something that was not really well done, we'd say, "She hath done what she could." And, uh, and then one day, a year or two later I got a call from the, the woman, the mother in this family she said, David, go get your King James Bible. I, I had to find a King James Bible. Brought, she says, go to, go to Mark. Look up. And it was this passage in Mark. Read it. And I came to it and it was Jesus who had said of this woman. In Mark, it, it says, he said, she hath done what she could. And I went, Oh, we've been mocking this. And the Bible, we didn't even know it was the Bible, you know. This is a great woman. She hath done what she could. Found a Mark, not our passage, is the highest praise you could possibly be given. She hath done what she could. So I want us to look at this woman. We need to remember um, who this woman is. There's an error that has crept into the church over the centuries that, that conflates and confuses <coughs> this woman with another Mary and with a third woman. The other Mary, of course, is Mary of Magdala. There's a number of Marys, Mary the mother of Jesus, this Mary, Mary of Magdala. Magdala is a city in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee. Mary of Magdala lives far north of here, a number of days journey from here. She's not this lady. Mary of Magdala, that Jesus is said at the last chapter of Mark to have cast demons out of, um, was not this woman. It's, it's, it's very clear. It can't be this woman. This woman is, is not a woman who we have any uh, stories of her. She's in a different location from a different family. Nothing at all to indicate that she had the demons cast out of her. There is... In the book of Luke another account confusing things further another account of a woman uh, anointing Christ with oil uh, and with perfume and with her tears that woman with her tears and that woman is not named but the location is clearly up in Galilee and so in the, about the 5th century A.D., Pope Gregory the Great, who was truly a great man, but in this I think he was wrong, said that they were all the same woman. <laughs> well, you're confusing of many things in the Bible, you know, the locations and all, but it has led to a conception that Mary of Magdala was a woman of ill repute as the woman in Luke is, the woman who the, it's at a Pharisee's house. The name of the Pharisee is Simon as well, but he's a fa- Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper as we have here. So there's enough similarities between the stories that you can see quite readily how it would be mistaken for, and probably in your own minds, you may wonder, which is Mary Magdala? Which is Mary? Which Mary is this? And did Mary Magdala have seven demons cast out of her or this one? Three, to the best of our knowledge, three separate women. Certainly this woman and Mary Magdala are from very different uh, places and 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 not at all the same women. So we have a scene here which has a, an immense splendor to it, but that splendor was not seen on the day that it took place and it may be invisible to you today as well. It is hard to see the splendor of this scene for some people. It requires a certain humility before Christ to grasp the the immensity of this scene and the glory of it. Because it's a scene of, well, you and I are likely to take as a scene of rebuke if we accept it. And we don't like it. We don't like the kind of rebuke it gives because it's a scene of uninhibited devotion and so just as the pronunciation of the word shibboleth in the Old Testament separated the Israelites some saying shibboleth some shibboleth this is a shibboleth this passage and it divides in our reaction to it it divides those who have tasted much of Christ from those who have tasted little And perhaps don't want to taste more. Two very similar stories from the life of Christ. One, much earlier in his ministry in Galilee, he's eating at the house of an opponent, a Pharisee. Now he's also named Simon. And you may say, well, how could it be that there are two Simons who have Jesus over and at both of their houses women anoint him? Well, coincidences happen. There were two Simons, Simons a common name. There were two Simons who were disciples as well. So, you know, these things happen. That woman in Galilee was a woman of previously dissolute character, anointed him with her perfume and tears while he was at the house of this Simon the Pharisee, not this house, which is of Simon the leper. In the aftermath of the woman's anointing tears, Simon the Pharisee was quietly contemptuous of Christ for his allowing a sinful woman to conduct herself so with him. Knowing Simon's thoughts, Jesus answered Simon and his objection. that was unvoiced, but Jesus knew it. By telling the story of a moneylender... To whom two men owed money, one owed 50 denarii, another 500. The moneylender forgave both men's debts, Jesus said. And then he asked Simon, which of the two do you think loved the moneylender more? And rather churlishly, you know, grudgingly, Simon responded, I suppose the one who owed him more. Jesus said to him, you've judged correctly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. But those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here again, Jesus is anointed by a woman. Here again, he's at dinner at the house of a man named Simon. Unlike the story in Luke, this woman is not a sinner and the host is not a Pharisee, but a leper. And it's in the last days of Christ's life, not earlier in his ministry. Interestingly, John tells this story. It's one of the few occasions where two of the synoptic gospels, the first three that seem to carry the same stories in the same order, uh, two of them have it, one of them doesn't. The one that doesn't have it Luke has a different story, but John tells this story. From the account in John, we learn that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are also, uh, that Martha and Lazarus are also with Mary at this dinner. Lazarus, we're told, is reclining at the table with Jesus. Martha is serving as is her wont. <laughs> Mary anoints Jesus with perfume. And on this occasion, like the prior occasion when he was anointed that we know of, there is again a negative response. This time it's from the disciples rather than their host. And their complaint, uh, a complaint that John tells us is voiced particularly by Judas, was that this anointing with perfume was a waste of money. And that this money that had been poured out on Christ, we're told that the, the, the perfume was worth 300 denarii, that this money should have been given to the poor. John tells us of Judas' complaint. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take from it what was put into it. So Jesus and his disciples are together. They're at Simon the leper's house. It's the last week of Christ's life. We can imagine, though we don't know for certain, that Simon was a leper who may have been healed by Christ, but that's supposition. Certainly he's a friend, not an enemy of Christ. His hosting of Lazarus and Martha and Mary indicate that there is a relationship there. Martha serving at his house indicates something of a relationship. Now, while Jewish families ate together, men and women, boys and girls, at normal meals, it was customary at special meals with special guests for the women to eat separately. And this is still common in parts of the world. Cheryl and I, as we've traveled, have realized that sometimes Cheryl will be included, but the women will serve. It was the custom here at this time. Mary is thus probably not lying at the table as her brother Lazarus clearly was. John writes, so they made him a supper there. Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a litra, about a quart of perfume, a very costly pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now there is... Another similarity between this and the previous story, it's, there's kind of an element of intrusion by Mary into the scene, as with the previous story. An interruption. The guests are lying at the table, lying as the custom was at formal meals then. Mary comes into the room with this litra, basically a pound of pure nard, also known as spikenard. It's a flowering plant with, uh, uh, from which an oil is pressed. It's grown in the high Himalayas. And the aromatic oil that's extracted from it is, has a pungent, beautiful odor. The scarcity of the plant and thus of the oil and the powerful fragrance that it emitted made it extremely valuable. The value of nard per unit of weight was significantly higher than that of gold. The value of this litre of nard is conservatively estimated today by its valuation then of 300 denarii at the equivalent of something like $60,000. A denarius was one day's wage for the average working man. And so what you have here is the average income for basically a year of one working man. Not a, a, a minimum wage, but a good wage for a year so sixty thousand dollars or the cost of a new lower line Mercedes or three times the value of a pound of gold which today would sell for twenty two thousand dollars so these men are in this room they're eating together Martha's serving and Mary walks into this room full of these men carrying an alabaster jar alabaster is a semi-precious mineral Not truly precious, but even today, if you buy an alabaster jar, it's gonna cost you $100. It's a soft mineral related to gypsum. It's easy to carve. It's used for fine carvings and decorative utensils. Alabaster in a jar would be a tip that something inside the jar is precious. Carrying this alabaster vase, Mary approaches Jesus who is lying on his couch at the table she comes to him she unstops the bottle and she begins to pour this aromatic spikenard oil on jesus probably beginning at his head she moves down until he is covered from head to foot the fragrance of this intense perfume wafts through the air as she pours out $60,000 worth of oil. Finally, using her hair as a towel, she wipes his feet with the oil. This is the closest she can come to him without it appearing to be an amorous deed. Modestly, yet flagrantly, she employs her hair to wipe his feet. Imagine being there. Shocking, right? Over the top. In a room full of men, it would be embarrassingly intimate. You can imagine that these men are squirming. It's like the woman that first time, and it's happening again. It's disturbing and unseemly. It's cringeworthy. But she loves him. Oh, she does. There's been speculation over the years about Mary of Magdala and her love for Jesus and all sorts of... all sorts of revolting speculation that Jesus was in love with Mary Magdalene, or this Mary, and it's usually a confusion of the two. Who knows, maybe at one time there was a romantic interest in this woman, but it's not an evidence here. Nowhere indicated, and even if it once existed, it's chaste. She expects no consummation of this act in any physical terms. She is not offering her body to Christ. She is offering everything she has and is in worship. Jesus is her Lord and her God. And she alone, of all his followers, seems to understand and to believe that he is going to his death despite the week before having raised her brother from the dead she does this jesus tells the disciples to prepare him for his upcoming burial she believes he's going to die she has faith eyes of faith she doesn't see a man that she's attracted to in this act. She sees God having come down. She sees the man who just days or weeks before came to Bethany at her calling, came because her brother had died and she'd let him know. She sees the man who came and who called her brother to come forth from the tomb. She knows by, by that act, he utterly alienated the Jewish leaders, the ones who decided because of what he'd done in raising Lazarus from the dead, that they had to kill him. And who are even now planning his death. She knows he raised her dead brother. That brother who lies at the table with Jesus. And Jesus, at least in part because of raising that brother, is about to be betrayed and put to death. In human terms, Lazarus is clearly linked to the death of Jesus. We know in heavenly terms there was much more going on than that. But in human terms, one of the proximate causes of the death of Jesus is his raising of Lazarus from the dead. This woman knows it, and she loves Jesus. She knows as well that Jesus is going to his death willingly for greater reasons, for more powerful purposes than simply dying for a friend. She knows the scriptures. She has heard Jesus when he teaches. She has listened. And when he said, I am going to die, she has believed when almost no one else has believed it. She knows he goes to death for her, for these men, for the sins of the world, and so she worships him. She loves him. She believes in him. Her brother was saved by him, and she herself wants to have her sins borne on Calvary by him. And nothing is too great for her to do for Christ in her love for him. Nothing is too great for her to give in her devotion to the Son of God. No sacrifice too great, no sacrifice too great for him who will be pouring out his blood for her, For her eternal salvation in a mere couple days she will pour out $60,000 worth of perfume and say it's nothing compared with the blood that he will shed for her. Like the first woman who anointed Christ Mary loves and sacrifices greatly because she knows how much Christ has spent on her. She loves greatly because she has been even more greatly loved. And yet the men are indignant. And this is always the way it is with those who are not as extravagantly in love with Christ as others. Those who are not as extravagantly in love with Christ as others always look down on the extravagance of those who love him a great deal. They go, it's out of proportion. You get a sense of, you know, be realistic. Don't, don't go overboard. You're, you've given yourself over to this way too much. These men are indignant. Those who are not forgiven much do not love much. Those who have not tasted Christ's power as much do not worship as much. This is simple truth. Truth then, truth here. Now, these men would never admit to a lack of love for Jesus. They have to demonstrate the righteousness of their objection to what she does. And so they do. They say, oh, I could have done something better with this money. They were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Give to the poor. Help the poor. Don't waste your money on Christ, woman. Give it to those who have need. Let me say in this day in which the, the cause, the, the great motive in the American church is to help the poor and to social justice and everything. Garbage. Garbage. Now, I want to say to you, no one is more fierce for the poor and the oppressed than God. God loves the poor and the oppressed. But do not confuse helping the poor with loving Jesus Christ. It is not love for Christ to give to the poor. Love for Christ may motivate your giving to the poor. And it should. But do not think that you can escape an absolute uninhibited love for Jesus because you do good deeds like giving to the poor in the eyes of the world. If you love Jesus the way you should love Jesus, you will not be praised for it. You will be praised for giving to the poor. But those who love Jesus extravagantly are always condemned by the world. So what cowardice we see here. And what shameful lies. They upbraid the one person in the room who really does love Jesus as her dying savior as though she lacks a sense of priorities. Again, let me say, it is Jesus himself who makes this statement we should never forget. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. You can always care for the poor but your priority needs to be Christ. Do not let your love for the poor, for the oppressed, for, for your wife, for anyone. I'm not just speaking about the poor and the oppressed. Do not let your love for anyone come between you and the extravagance and depth of your love for Jesus Christ. I have a, a close relative Oh, I think may have done more for the poor in her lifetime objectively than most of us, maybe than most of us put together. She takes meals to the homeless, goes down to the, the bridges where the homeless camps are and takes Thanksgiving dinner for everyone there. Christmas. Cold days goes down and gathers clothes and takes it. She's that kind of woman. But that is her love and her righteousness. She cares for the poor. While paying lip service to Jesus, her righteousness is in her deeds. Jesus is a great example to her, but she doesn't sense the sin in her life that causes her to need a Savior. Jesus is an example and not a Savior. So I say to you, Don't let your talk about the poor, your talk about the poor babies and abortion, your talk about the inner city, about justice, your talk about certain lives mattering. Don't don't talk about these things until and unless you have first thrown yourself entirely and without reservation in love on the person of Jesus Christ. Until you have given yourself to him withholding nothing. Until your money belongs entirely to him. And thus you're giving to the poor his money, not your own. It's for his credit, not because you want to look good. Do not brag about giving to the poor. Until your heart is filled with blazing love for Christ, do not talk about loving others. The poor, the excuse the disciples give for disapproval. It's a red herring, a lie. Because they are uncomfortable with, and honestly, if we're going to speak realistically, they despise such abandonment to Christ. They look at Mary and they see weakness, probably feminine weakness. They are embarrassed at her emotive exhibition. It is not strong. It is not manly. It is embarrassing. And so they're ashamed of Mary's love, her devotion, and her over-the-top dedication to Christ. No, they will not abandon themselves so. Not to Christ. Not to such emotion. Not for them such dedication and loss of self-control. Not for them. Everything for them must be decently in order, measured, restrained, dignified, manly. In all things, decently and in order. We will worship you, Christ, in a way that is fitting. We will do it in a way that does not imply any loss of self-control. We see you, and we honor you. And from our position of manliness, we will give you manly recognition, Christ. How good to be a woman at times like this rather than the proud man. They disapprove and are condemned by that very disapproval. They condemn themselves. They come up lacking in the judgment of God. Mary's approved and they're rebuked. Mary is glory. They're embarrassed of Christ, not Mary. They're embarrassed of Christ. They're not embarrassed of Mary. Mary. and they become embarrassments to him. These men say they know him. They say they serve him. They say they love him. They even say they'll go to the death with him. Yet they condemn this woman for her devotion even as they falter and fail in the things that they say they do do and will do. These men, they cast jaundiced eyes on Mary. Look at that emotive woman, look at her. Out of control. And by their jaundiced eyes, they're, they're looking at her and going... Rawr. They are able to look down on her and feel superior to her and thus they have no obligation to love Jesus as she does. They complain about her actions. No, they don't like this kind of intense love. Let me ask you guys, you ever fall in love with a woman Most of you probably have. Head over heels in love. (laughs) When you fall head over heels in love with a woman and you meet her friends and you find that her friends are not entirely to your taste, some of them, you go, well, I'm going to drop her. Can you imagine doing that? Yeah, I remember dating Cheryl years ago and uh, she told me about these older teachers at the Christian school she'd gone to and uh, how great they were. And so I were dating and she took me to the church and school in Indiana that she'd grown up in and I met these two older women. And they looked at me and they, they said, one of them said to me, she said, who would think that Cheryl would ever marry a pastor? <laughs> And you know what, at that point, I didn't like those ladies. I I really didn't, I still dislike them to this day. (laughs) I've not seen them again, but I hold this against them that they would say something that, I didn't like her friends, but did it keep me from, from loving Cheryl? Did it in any way affect my love for Cheryl? If it had affected my love for Cheryl, you know, If it had had some impact on that, then the truth would be that I didn't really love Cheryl. It wouldn't be about the friends, it would be about her. The reality is that the man who rejects the woman because of her friends really isn't enamored with the woman. And the man who rejects Christ because of the actions of his followers really doesn't love Jesus. Some of you have said, I don't like the way these people worship. I think they're hypocrites. Jesus is okay. But I, I don't like those who like him and therefore I'm not going to give myself to him like they do. And I say to you, you're a fool. You're insane. You're complaining about others but really you're just saying you don't want Jesus. That's all you're saying. That's all you mean. Isn't the truth that if a thing is glorious and valuable enough, you will do everything in your power to get it? Isn't that the point Jesus is making about the parrot with his parables about the kingdom when he says it's like a pearl of great price, which the trader goes and sells everything he has to get, or the parable about <coughs> the treasure hidden in a field that a man finds, he goes and sells everything to buy the field. That we should sell all we have to obtain it. What better fulfillment of those parables of the kingdom could we possibly find than this Mary? There's a man named James Howells who lives in Newport, Wales. In the early days of Bitcoin, some of you probably heard of him, he played around with Bitcoin in the very earliest days. Set his computer on Bitcoin mining, mined Bitcoins, kind of forgot about it, thought he tossed his hard drive, 20 gig hard drive in a cupboard, then Remembered some years later that he had this this hard drive with Bitcoin on it. You heard the story, yeah, yeah. And uh, went to look for it, couldn't find it. He thought, "Oh my!" At that point, he realized the value of Bitcoin was about his Bitcoin was about seventy million. Since then, it's gone up and down. It was up to 350 million dollars. Down to, now, it's down to like 70 or 80 million again. It had been taken in the garbage. He was convinced that man James Howells has spent the better part of a decade digging up the landfill in Newport, Wales, to get Bitcoin. He's put his nose into the garbage of life for a decade to get Bitcoin. What a better bargain this woman has made to give up her money to get Jesus. What a better bargain. What are you pursuing with your money and your affections I don't know what it is, I know what my things have been. There was a five, seven year period when I was a pastor when every spare moment I'd play video games. Praise God, it's in the past. I've had people in my church whose pursuits were their 67 Hemi charger. I don't know what it is with you. Probably ranges all across the board. Vacation, homes, I don't know. What return are you getting from that pursuit? What return is your passion, your devotion, your expenditures on that pursuit? What are you getting? This woman puts her treasure into Jesus and look at her reward, she gets Jesus Christ. She gets his love, his forgiveness, and she gets eternal life. You say, well, that's wonderful. But notice what else she gets, everlasting glory. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Mary is more famous and more glorious in the world than Julius Caesar. More people know the name of Mary and her deeds than know the triumphs of Caesar in Gaul or his crossing of the Rubicon. Mary gets glory. Pour out your life in worship of Christ, uninhibitedly, throwing your heart, your money, your body, everything you have into him, and your rewards will be richer than anything you can ever imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this woman who is such an example to us may we not look on her with with embarrassment but may we long to be like her and may you make us like her so that we give everything we have to gain christ not the world but christ we know that if we gain christ we gain the world and eternity together give us christ we pray in jesus name amen